Welcome to the Neuropedic Sports Rehab Podcast. I'm your host, Ramez Antoon, but please call me Mez. I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. And in this show, we talk about the continuum of clinical practice to getting back to training in the gym. We focus on sustainable performance and longevity. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our show. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is an episode that's actually a recast from the Level Up Initiative with Zach Gabor, one of our first mentees of Neuropedics. We discuss how he actually was the inspiration for starting a Neuropedics mentorship way back in 2016, I believe. Anyways, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I had a lot of fun reflecting back on Zach's experience, and I hope you enjoy the episode too. What's going on, everybody? Good morning. It's been a minute since we've had a Level Up podcast, but I'm so excited for today's episode. This one is super near and dear to my heart because we're interviewing arguably one one of the most influential mentors and people at at a very formative time during my clinical development my development as a human, um, we'll kind of talk about that just in terms of the age that I was working with this individual. Um, but needless to say, we, we have Ramez Antoon on the podcast today. Um, he's someone that I'm lucky to call a dear friend as well as a colleague and a mentor. When I was trying to navigate frantically through the new grad waters, I was lucky enough to connect with Ramez through a friend, uh, Matty Ibes, Matt Ibrahim, shout out to him. Thank you, the ultimate connector. Um, but <laughs> I was immediately drawn to Ramez for just the level of care that he like was very clear how much he cared about clinical um, care, <laughs> so to speak, and just the amount of work that he's put in to better himself and just how broad his... Um, knowledge base was, you know, covering things from orthopedic manual therapy to a PNF residency. And Ramez will tell you a little bit about his background. Um, but I was really, um, a lot of that was really enticing to me to work with someone like that, where I was like, do I go do a residency? Do I uh, just go take a bunch of con ed courses? And um, as we'll talk about in this, Ramez actually basically curated a six month curriculum that we went through together. And um, I was at his um, apartment in Somerville, his where also his cash-based clinic was, Neuropedics, and I was over there twice a week for six months. Um, you know, two hours each day, doing a combination of lecture, lab, working through, um, bun- you know, bunch of different things, um, but ultimately just a ton of really good discussion and a and an environment for me to really grow and foster um, foster that as a as a new grad during these really formative years. So eternally grateful for Ramez. And today we're gonna kind of be reflecting on that experience uh, cause it's been what three, four years removed from that now. So it's gonna be really cool to kind of see lessons learned, what Ramez is up to. Um, so I'm super excited to have him on and introduce him to, to introduce him to our audience. So Ramez, after that long winded intro, Welcome to the show, man. Thank you for taking some time to come on and chat today. Dude, Zach, thank you so much. I feel super, super grateful to be here. And uh, I'm very humbled by that introduction. Uh, definitely means means a lot to me, man. That You were the first person to come to me for mentorship and guidance. And uh, 
like we'll get into later, I just had so much damn fun nerding out with you for six months. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, I agree. It was just so much fun, man. And that's how learning should be. Um, so let's, let's provide some background context, Mez. So, um, would love to have you share with our audience a little bit more about you, like journey to DPT school, and then kind of, you know, what was sort of like the guiding, the guiding light for you through PT school that kind of helped inform the choices you made about what was important to you for your professional development and, and how you ended up at each of those different, um, journeys of professional development. Okay, yeah. So uh, just a little bit about me. I'm a Middle Eastern immigrant born in Egypt. I'm a, I'm a new dad. Uh, Congrats. Husband. Thanks, man. Shout out to Lily, my daughter, Lily, <laughs> two months old today. Um, yeah. And uh, so yeah, growing up, growing up, I grew up in Ashland, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, growing up, I never really felt like I belonged being an immigrant. So the gym and strength and conditioning is actually how I found my confidence as a teenage Middle Eastern boy growing up around here. And uh, ever since then, I was I was a health and fitness enthusiast, as they say. Um, and that's what led me to go to UMass Lowell for exercise physiology. Um, I fell in love with physical therapy. I remember shadowing a physical therapist that was so humanistic in his approach and just connected a lot with his patients. And I just fell in love with it. Um, so I ended up going to UMass Lowell in light of going to physical therapy school. So through exercise physiology program at UMass Lowell, I even fell in love with strength conditioning even more. Uh, I met a good friend of mine, Connor Ryan, who introduced me to the Eric Cressy and Mike Boyle crowd. Um, a lot of his friends were interns there. He interned there. So I really just dove into strength and conditioning from there. Then in physical therapy school, I was dead set laser focused on going into sports med and orthopedics. I was like, this is my jam. I'm going to do that and strength and conditioning. And that's what I'm going to do. But in PT school, I actually fell in love with neuro. I like, I geeked out when it came to neuro. My neuro professor was amazing. Dr. Joanne Marty Barron, uh, who took over for Susan B. O'Sullivan. Uh, and it was just an, I just loved neuro. And while I was a physical therapy student, I actually volunteered as a strength coach for UML athletics under Devin McConnell, who, uh, who was an intern for Mike Boyle. But anyways, I remember specifically one day, and I feel like this is the, like the, one of the biggest milestones in my career to answer your question specifically. I came out of NeuroLab after a day of talking about, you know, mobility and stability progressions as it relates to the neurodevelopmental sequence and helping someone with a stroke get out of bed for bed mobility. And I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. That was a Friday. I left NeuroLab, went to the strength conditioning room to help Devin coach. And he was taking all the volleyball players through a movement screen and using the same exact narratives that we just talked about in NeuroLab to help someone roll out of bed to help program these volleyball, the volleyball team strength conditioning program. And my mind just blew up. <laughs> I was like, what? There's no way that the same thing we're doing to help someone walk again and get out of bed is the same thing we're doing to help someone increase their vertical jump test. Like this is mind-blowing. Devin introduced me to the movement book and the great cook movement system. And I was just like, my friends in PT school could not get me to shut the F up about <laughs> integrating neuro and ortho and pediatrics. Um, and yeah, everyone always asked me because I was so annoying about this when we would go out and party. It was like, so Mez, what are you going to do? You're going to do neuro or you're going to do ortho? And my answer was always both. And everyone always gave me shit and chuckled because that didn't exist. It was like, well, okay, so what, so no, so what are you really going to do? 
neuro or ortho, right? And I just kind of stuck to my guns. I learned about the PNF program towards the end of uh, PT school. So I flew out to Vallejo, California to learn PNF. You want to say something? Well, just time. I just want to timestamp this stuff just to provide some context. So when was, when did undergrad end? When did DPT school start? I graduated undergrad 2010, graduated PT school 2013. Awesome. And I went, I went straight to uh, California just to do the nine month residency uh, at Kaiser Permanente right after that. Awesome. and then, so my main, my main driving focus and my mission of going to PNF was all the, because like in PT school, I was taking all the con ed courses. I like my professors were calling me crazy because I took PRI, I took DNS, I took FMS, I took, I was just like down the rabbit hole. Like my dad asked me what he, what I wanted for Christmas. I was like, buy me the next course. <laughs> that was, that, that's how I, I did. And all these different systems when you talk, when they talked about their inspiration towards creating a system, PNF kept coming up over and over and over again. So I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to go dive into the roots of PNF and figure out what this is all about. Um, so I went to PNF and luckily for me at PNF, I actually got mentored by one of the pain neuroscience educators while I was there, Steven Schmidt, uh, who was trained by Maitland as a manual therapist, who's now teaching at PNF and who's traveling, teaching pain neuroscience. And I got to see a real master pain neuroscience educator work with thalamic pain syndrome, phantom limb pain, uh, uh, CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, and really see the craftsmanship of blending these narratives with a very hands-on approach to rehab. And I didn't, I didn't really see that coming. So that was really exciting uh, because he helped trump a lot of my biases and a lot of my very biomechanical based narratives. Um, And that was really cool. So anyways, I did that, came back to the East Coast after my nine month residency. And I, again, to go right into orthopedics and sports medicine and realized very quickly that my ortho skills were very subpar. So like I always do, I just dive in, <laughs> just throw myself into different systems. So I signed up for the two-year orthopedic uh, manual ther- therapy fellowship under Martin Langus. Um, and that's where I really learned, to be honest with you, how to do a thorough history and look at the person's environment and, um, you know, like just look at movement in a, from a very biomechanical lens again. So it was, it was almost like my mind bounced back and forth. I went like ortho, I started ortho strength conditioning, then went neuro pain science, then came back to ortho biomechanical. And then now it's like, I'm trying to blend it all together here. But that was that. Was that. And about a year and a half into the fellowship and working in an insurance-based outpatient clinic, I started to ex- experience significant burnout. And uh I kind of fell into a little mini depression. I was, I, apparently I was diving too deep into my patient's problems and uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have according to uh, like, you know, what people were saying, but you know, I, something just rubbed me the wrong way about either having to choose between my own energy and my own self-care and taking care of people. So I pulled the trigger and went cash-based model um, in my apartment in Somerville, which people called me insane for doing like, first of all, who the hell is going to pay cash for PT? Second of all, 
you're working out of an apartment. Like, is anyone going to take you seriously? Like, I just, I mean, got- this was all like, this was circa 2015, 2016. Like this was still very much on the yeah. frontier of this movement that was happening. I was called a moron. Everyone was like, you're out of your mind. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. And uh, I started neuropedics. And now, you know, when people ask me, Ramez, do you want to do neuro or ortho? I say both. And my answer is neuropedics. <laughs> oh, dude. So that I, was the inspiration and the journey really in a nutshell. I love it, man. And um, I think now that, that sort of like lends well into talking about, I think that goes like, it syncs up perfectly to discuss kind of the um, mentorship experience that we had um, lovingly known as the remesidency. Um, Cause <laughs> I, you know, for some of you out there, you might be familiar with my journey, but you know, I was also someone that was, you know, going through school, super passionate about just like drawn to wanting to just provide the best care possible for my patients. Um, so I was constantly trying to learn and expose myself to the different areas. Cause it feels just really overwhelming when you're graduating and you're just like, Oh my God, there's so much to learn. And I don't know anything. And like, where the hell do I even start? There's all these different systems. I think one of the things was that I was really attracted to Remez about was like, again, this was like 2015, 2014, where I was like super seduced into like the T nation rabbit hole. So I was going deep on like the Mike Boyle, Eric Cressy, um, all that stuff. And just like really, uh, trying to dive into strength and conditioning. And I think when I was graduating, I was really interested in how to merge kind of a more strength and conditioning based approach into kind of an outpatient orthopedic setting. Um, so that was one thing on my mind. And then the other thing too, was just kind of like, you know, it, being interested in some of these other different systems like SFMA. Um, and I was also new to like the pain science world. It wasn't something that I really started getting um, introduced to until um, nine months of practice. So it wasn't even something that I knew that I wanted, but once I learned about it, I was like, oh shit, this stuff feels pretty important. And so that was when I was starting to go through a little bit of my own existential crisis as well. Um, so I was a little like, I got connected with Ramez and he was, you know, we would just have nerd sessions. It was great. We were just developing a good friendship. And, you know, I was asking him advice about like, you know, I'm really hungry for some like intensive clinical development. I feel like I'm not happy with where I'm at. I'm six, you know, a year out of practice, but I, I have reservations about doing a full residency or even doing the orthopedic manual fellowship. Cause it was at that time that I was starting to kind of just question some of the, uh, like if it really aligned with my values based on what I was coming to understand about it. Um, and yeah, that was sort of like talking to Ramez about it. I was like, look, you have a two, you did a two year, uh, fellowship in orthopedic manual therapy. You did, you know, you're super well-versed in SFMA. You did a PNF residency to get the neuro base. You're super well-versed in strength and conditioning and integrating that all in as well as the pain science lens. So, oh my God, Penny's freaking out. Give me one second. We're just going to pause. <laughs> no. So all of that to say, um, there was something really enticing about working with you to kind of reconcile all of this. And I think that was ultimately the thing that I was really attracted to working with, with you was someone that had experienced a lot of these different worlds 
and now is trying to kind of reconcile it into a cohesive approach that was really based in just patient empowerment and, you know, best possible care. And I think that again, like you were, you know, people jokingly in school and new grad, like, you know, they think I'm an absolute psychopath because of how much I like care and try to do all these different things. But like, you definitely match the level of intensity in terms of like your enthusiasm for all of this stuff. So I just think it was, it was a great fit. And that was, that ended up being literally one of the coolest things we like lit just, each other's fires even even bigger. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, when when did we when did we actually start? Was it 2016? It was. I was. I remember this specifically. Oh, look at that! You still have the binder. Still, still I love it. Come on. <laughs> um, at the time, you were getting into uh, road biking, and I want to say triathlon. Yes. Is that yes. right? Yep. And I'm so I remember it was like a it was like a we started in the fall and we went into like into the spring basically. Right. Um if I'm remembering correctly. The year like so I came back from I came back from PNF 2014, started the fellowship. It ha- it had to have been like 2016, 17, but I'm terrible with times. My wife will tell you that <laughs> firsthand. <laughs> fair, fair deal. So, I think so I guess just reflecting on it, because I want to kind of talk about this experience now, because mm-hmm. I think, and I've, I've told you about this before, but when I reflect back on it, like this, this mentorship, this residency, whatever we want to call it, and, and why it was so formative, I think just in terms of the overall experience, but in terms of the beginning and how you set expectations and just like set the framework was so it was like my absolute love language. Like you were, you were really, it's so funny, right? Because it's like, you know, for someone that was super well-versed and kind of down all these different rabbit holes of different systems, you started this whole experience by like inoculating me with practical skepticism of being like, look, (laughs) I remember this lesson. I remember this day. I remember this clear as day where you were like, look, Something super important to understand is that like, regardless of what direction you go, all of these different systems, you know, quote unquote work, how the hell can that be? (laughs) I remember like to that, to this day, that's still a question that blows my mind and, and kind of like drives this curiosity of like trying to really understand, think more about the active ingredients across rehab what are some of the things that are really driving the progressions? But I just think that like instilling that humility um, at the very beginning of it, I just, you know, I think that set the stage for such a fun, open learning environment where it was like, nothing was dogma. It was like a very, it was a very anti-dogma culture, but still respecting and going through these different systems, but with a lens of practical skepticism that could acknowledge openly, maybe some of the you know, quote unquote critiques or shortcomings, so to speak, um, if we were to even call them that. But that to me still sticks with like, I think that's part of what makes you such a phenomenal mentor was like that, um, was that aspect of it. And I'm wondering like how that got instilled in you and like where you kind of um, came to understand um, such an important concept. I really appreciate that, man. I, I've I've tried to evolve and maintain that um, setting of the stage with like starting with the why and um, 
you know, why we do what we do. How did it get instilled in me? That's a really good question. Honestly, man, my mentors, like I just had such incredible mentors that were so good at boiling things down to principles. Um, you know, what, what was the goal? And my, my mentors weren't getting pulled down rabbit holes. Like my mentors, you know, they, they had this like insightful insight as to like, what's the purpose here. And I think that's where I got it from. Like PNF taught me that more than anything else, like coming right out of school, going there, like PNF, unlike popular thought, it's not just diagonal patterns and contract, relax, stretching. It's, it's a philosophy of human treatment. It's like, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but like one of the founding philosophies of PNF is believe in the potential to change and to bring out that potential. We have to coach the whole person using a positive approach, full stop. Like, and anytime we get into problem solving strategies and treatment to help someone walk again at PNF, we would videotape each other doing things and we would analyze video footage. And we just always kept that in perspective, like believe in the potential to change. If we set up an ideal learning environment and coach the whole person and use a positive approach, we will tap into something that will motivate somebody. We'll, we'll find salience somehow, you know, and, and it like, it kind of always kept us as clinicians seeing the perspective of what we were doing. And, and I think PNF is what really established that in me. And then when I went to my OMT fellowship, Martin Langus was also really good at that too. Like he didn't call it pain science, but he was doing pain science <laughs> right. by the way he listened to the person, by the way he took a history, asking really good and thoughtful questions and playing off of what the patient was telling him. It was just both approaches were just so humanistic uh, that's yeah. where it came from. Yeah. So it's almost like you learned, you know, when I'm, as I've been kind of reflecting over the last few months, it's sort of what I've come to understand as like the ability to zoom in and zoom out. Um, exactly. I think when we're going through PT school and understandably, so it's very zoomed in, we need to understand the basics. We need to understand all of the anatomical pathoanatomical, kinesiopathological underpinnings and understandings of these things. But if we're not able to zoom out from a more humanistic perspective, it we might be leaving a lot um, on the table, so to speak. So and to and to take that a step further, I think like understanding how to communicate and 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 talk about the pathoanatomical stuff versus whether it be the pain science stuff, from a operational standpoint, it helps us connect to different patient populations. Like mm. when an engineer walks in the door, I might use more like kinematic language, but like if an artist walks in the door or like a, like a psychotherapist who understands the psychological aspects of what we do as humans, then I might, I might take it into more of the philosophical pain science of like language. You know what I mean? Yep. It, it helps us be more agile in communication with our patients. And I think that's the biggest thing. If you're not able to be cognitively agile in how you communicate to patients and educate patients, you're not going to be able to touch as many people because different people, different narratives sync differently with different types of people, you know, clap emoji. Um, <laughs> but, but honestly, man, but that's why like Ramez really was the OG of planting some of the major seeds for level up because like talk about like technical and like empathetic and compassionate excellence. Like that was at the foundation of Ramez's approach from my perspective was just like the communication aspect was hammered on so hard during what we were doing beyond just 
having the savage technical knowledge base to inform clinical reasoning and clinical excellence. So that was something that I was super attracted to. And then real quick, while we're talking about setting the stage, you were also the person that put me on, you know, my first book that I had to read for the residency was Mindset by Carol Dweck. Yeah, I love that book. And, you know, it's so funny because I feel like it is, it has kind of become this like pop psych terminology where, you know, look, I think getting exposed to that concept was so important for me because, you know, we're clearly like, we're both people that are extremely passionate, excitable, open-minded. And like, you read that book and you're like identifying, you're like, oh, cool. Like, these are definitely some areas that resonate with me. Like, then I have a growth mindset, but then you read and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> there I'm are a fixed mindset there, in all these areas. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are a ton of areas that I could grow. So, I mean, talk about the humility and like just cultivating that like awareness. Um, mm. And that's why like, and we'll kind of talk about gems from the different um, like paradigms within the residency, but like just the foundational, like I, I tell people, I'm like, I matured as a human, like going through that, which I think in turn makes you a much better clinician, but it's like, you help me really reflect on myself, you know, my beliefs, my attitudes, areas that I can improve. And that, and that I believe directly impacts our ability to become excellent clinicians is by becoming, you know, just people that are super open and able to point the finger in and take ownership over some of these different areas that can improve. And that's why, I mean, that stuck with me. I mean, look at level up. That's the first month is all around that mindset. And that is directly, directly from you, directly from the residency that set the stage for a really rich learning environment. I really appreciate that, man. I really do. Yeah. It's like self- it really comes down to self-awareness, right? Like totally. if we, if we don't have self-awareness, there's so many areas in our lives that we won't be able to grow. Clinical practice is one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. And just having conversations, right? Cause it's like, well, there's, we'll talk about this later on in terms of just like <clears throat> a lot of the tribalism in the industry, but it's like, I am a firm believer that the only way to move our profession forward is by being able to have constructive conversations. And I think that unless you're able to really look inward and have this awareness, you know, and empathize for others' perspectives, you were unable to have these constructive conversations. So I think, again, like that was just such a key, key aspect of like what I really took out of the experience with you was just some of these big picture things that like set the foundation for a really, really rich um, learning environment. I appreciate that, man. That, that means a lot. Yep. So I think t- talking about it now, because it sounds like we kind of touched a little bit on PNF and like the orthopedic manual fellowship and, and some of the takeaways of how that informs your practice, but kind of wanted to dive a little bit more into that because, and tell people a little bit about the experience that we had. So basically the way Ramez had designed this, it was like basically going head to toe. Um, with these different learning modules where we were kind of reconciling some of like the orthopedic manual, orthopedic manual therapy, um, you know, checklist of like the different moves and manual techniques, but also clinical reasoning around differential diagnosis, but then also taking kind of a more big picture, like neuropedic um, approach with SFMA and the breakouts for all of these different movements as well as integrating in pain science. And that was sort of like the lens that we took for each different body part. 
um, which I thought was really, really cool. And I just want to share. So, cause like on the other side of it, it's like, you know, I, I'm not necessarily, you know, I was always a bit ambivalent about how much I wanted manual therapy to be a core of my practice. Um, but that being said, I still think that going through and learning it was super important because I actually, the orthopedic stuff that I took away, like the biggest that still sticks with me to this day and influences my practice in a major way is just the big picture environmental considerations and just the beastly like clinical reasoning. Like you need to know like- Deductive logic. Yeah, and, and just like you need to understand all the different things and possibilities that could potentially be relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was so helpful going through that was just differential diagnosis, but really like, I think you really helped me zoom out. I think this was where I really started to understand the importance of zooming out and understanding the environmental um, considerations for when we're working with people where it was like mind blowing to me where it's like, okay, you know, coming out of school, it's like someone has low back pain and I'm just like zooming in on the person and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, you have anterior pelvic tilt. You have hypertonicity in your left paraspinals. You have this movement dysfunction, you know, and this was so glaring to me, but it was like, well, hold up, like zoom the hell out. Are you, have you considered, cause it's like how an individual is perturbed in their environment <laughs> and mm-hmm. there are all of these things like perhaps that might be potentially like something very important to consider before we go pointing fingers about how relevant some of these like zoomed in considerations are. And that totally changed the fucking game for me, man. Like just like appreciating the importance of zooming out in the environment. Nothing was the same. <laughs> Nothing was the same. For me, <laughs> well, that, that came from Martin Langus, to be honest with you, man, he taught me legitimately how to go into an orthopedic especially with the spine, orthopedic uh, evaluation, take the subjective, go through to give some of the uh, listeners a, a more of a clear picture of what Zach means by the environment here is like someone walks in with back pain and we have to somehow categorize them into a specific type of back pain, especially if it's acute or subacute. So knowing whether they're load intolerant, flexion intolerant or extension intolerant, knowing what their level of neural tension sensitivity is, knowing their exposure to sustained postures throughout their environment and their day, knowing what they do for work, knowing when, what to them are their biggest triggers throughout their day and dissecting all that with them is, you know, really helps create salience for the patient because the, the evaluation is so specific to them and the conversations throughout the plan of care is so specific to their day to day that they actually start tuning in. Um, and I think, you know, one of my biggest philosophies now is we have right off the bat, consider both the environment and the person and the environment means their physical environment, their social environment, you know, like their support system. One of the biggest, one of the biggest, I just read this the other day, the biggest predictor of success after a total knee replacement, one of the biggest factors is family support. Yep. Isn't that amazing? It is. And it's incredibly <laughs> humbling too. <laughs> You know, like, and it just gives you perspective when you see a patient coming in with, you know, after a total knee or whatever, and why do some of these people not do well? And I'm seeing clinically, it's like some of the people who don't really do well, like 
there's tension at home. They're, they, they're, they're alone. They're lonely. Yeah. There's so many, you know, layers to that. And we won't go too out in the cosmos with that. We'll fill it back <laughs> in, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that, man, that that was your take home because uh, yeah, I'm still super passionate about teaching that and teaching yeah. people how to take that into clinical practice. Yeah, man. And, and that's why like, you know, we can sort of lead into, I guess, you know, quickly, cause this was, as we're going through this, we're obviously talking about some of the things emerging in the social media landscape, which was starting to blow up during this time. And just all the different like tribal sort of battles of, you know, this, Mm. not that, or whatever. And I think, you know, it's, um, I think it just really shaped for me, like as much as I was like, so um enthralled by the pain science literature and just like the importance of the language we were using like this mentorship really solidified like this isn't like an either or thing like the best clinicians have to be super duper sound with their orthopedic foundations um but they also have to be able to zoom out and understand like the whole big humanistic approach to all of this Um, and I, and I'm just really grateful for that because I think it's a time where it's like really easy for things to become, come off really radical in the profession where it's like, if you do manual therapy, you're a ex therapist. If you just do pain science, you're an ex therapist. And, um, I'm just really grateful to have had such a, um, open learning environment where it really appreciated all the nuance and, connectedness of all these different things. And, um, you know, so leading up to today's world, like, I'm curious, Ramez, like, what are, what are some of the things or, um, you know, issues that you still see or hear about in terms of like, practice patterns of like, good practice, bad practice claims and, and things that you're seeing, seeing at an industry level, that makes sense. From like, from like a just in our industry or from like a global healthcare perspective? Uh, perhaps both. Cause I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Okay. Uh, let's I mean, start at the industry the, level at the, in, in, in our rehab yep. industry level, yep. at the rehab industry level, man, you think you already nailed it. It's there's just, there's a lot of, uh, tribism in our industry today. And a lot of people throwing jabs at each other. And I just don't think that is conducive to a good learning environment. You know, like if, if someone's attacking you, you're not going to want to learn from them. Right. Right. And if, if we start, if we start the conversation that way, then nothing is going to end up changing and there's, it's not productive. Right. Right. Uh, So that's number one. So, you know, that can be, whether it be someone is throwing jabs at manual therapy or whether it's someone throwing jabs at pain science or whether it's an FRC guy throwing jabs at an FMS guy or vice versa, PRI, you know, the, the list goes on. And this has been going on for generations, like back in the forties, you know, when PNF and NDT were going on, people were saying that like uh, Maggie Knott and the, and the Bobath family were like antagonists towards each other. It's like, no, they weren't. They are actually really good friends. Like the leaders of a lot of these systems actually get along really well. It's the, it's the blind followers that are fighting and you have to be able to delineate the people who have perspective from the people who are just trying to find an identity. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, you have to know thyself before you start, you know, getting into these type of conversations, because very quickly, it can be, it can drain your energy, and it can leave you feeling 
like crap and no one wants to feel like that. We have to, we have to fill up our tank so that we can actually go help people who are actually suffering. Yeah. That's, that's kind of my take on that. So yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of that going on these days and we're not going to get political in this conversation, but like if we zoom totally out, there's, you know, certain belief systems are arguing with other belief systems and it's just, yeah, I think uh, self-awareness is probably the anecdote to all of that. <laughs> yeah, man, no, totally. And I, and I think too, just like a, a message to newer clinicians or students listening, like, I think that there's, um, there's so much value to taking time to learn from other people or other systems that like, you might, you know, a, as an example, um, like I feel like FMS and SFMA have come under a lot of flack for um, certain aspects of their paradigm. Um, but that being said, I still recommend people to read Movement, um, the book. And, you know, even if, even if that's something that I've kind of grown away from in my practice, I still found a lot of value from studying it and learning it and, and playing around with it. And I think that that's just like an that's just like an exemplar of like, not just blindly following. It's being like, Oh, like if you do, you know, FMS or, you know, SFMA, then you're like a reductionist, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, all right, hold up here. Like, I think, you know, I think there is value to spending time learning from different people and different systems. Um, but with that open mind, like you, like you instilled in me from the very beginning, it was never like, this is the way, it was saying, this is a way that makes a lot of sense to me, but like also understand that a lot of shit works. So like, and I'll lastly say, I think one of the best things like about having a mentor is like, you shouldn't necessarily come out practicing exactly like your mentor. Exactly. A mentor fosters the growth within you. And right. so like our practices probably aren't exactly the same, but the underlying principles and the human centricness of it and the level of care and enthusiasm and thoughtfulness is on point and is it the, and is the same. And I think that's just like such a powerful thing for people to understand about a good mentor is it doesn't need to be exactly the way that you're going to practice the process. Scott Morrison has talked about this, the process and the journey of working through these things is where the real reward lies. So yeah. I love that, man. I love that. Reminding me of a Bruce Lee quote is, uh, take, what is it? Take what takes, what take, what works for you, leave what doesn't and create your own or something like that. Totally. Right. And yes, that was, exactly. and that's, that's actually like, you know, to, for the people listening out there who are maybe still students or new grads, like my message is very similar is do what excites you like listen to your own voice, you know, I'm going to get soft here, listen to your heart, like what in practice, or when you would do observation hours, or when you're in clinical, like, what excites you, what gets you fired up, listen to that, right? I mean, I'll just, I'll just give you an example, like after doing from my own personal journey, after learning about pain, science, education, everything like that, I actually demonized pain, uh, manual therapy, uh, because I believed that it was doing harm, because of the narratives that I learned how to use while doing them. But after kind of combining OMT and PNF, learning from Steve Schmidt, by the way, who just came out with a new book, Integrating Manual Therapy and Pain Science. When I brought pain science back or manual therapy back into my practice with a pain science framework, 
there's the, there was this new fire that ignited inside of me and this new passion that reemerged in my practice because I realized how much I missed the craft of using my hands, right? And when I listened to that voice and I realized how to frame it in a way that was more empowering and not creating dependence, it brought passion back and my patients felt it and I felt it and it was beautiful, yeah. right? And that doesn't mean that you need to practice pain science. I'm just saying that you need to listen to your voice and you need to really listen to what excites you and what brings you passion, because that's one of the first things that will help you fight burnout, yeah. right? Like one of the biggest things that, you know, I started learning about burnout and compassion fatigue and all these things that actually exist that describe what I was going through before I went cash-based practice was like, oh my God, if we feel overwhelmed, ineffective and dehumanized, we're going to feel burnout. And I was like, oh shit. Well, <laughs> some of the things that combat that is having some type of fire that excites you. And for me, like I felt like manual therapy at first was ineffective after learning pain science. But then when I learned how to integrate it with pain science, I was like, no, this shit's actually extremely effective and empowering and create hope for our patients if we know how to communicate effectively, sure. you know? Um, so yeah, like for those listening, just follow your heart, man, listen to what excites yeah. you and like bring that into practice and, and just keep an open mind. Right. Cause it's like, I, I think exactly. that I, it's something I've changed my stance on as well, where I was like super hardo anti-manual therapy for a while where I still don't necessarily use a ton of it, but I'm also not like, I would recommend any one of my family members, friends to you. Cause I know that they're going to receive phenomenal fucking care um and <laughs> like that. regardless that. of someone utilizing manual therapy or not i feel like that's some that's a big that's a big pendulum in in the profession and totally. um i think just having having an open mind and understanding of it because again like the more you look into the historical aspects of it like i understand like maitland was one of the ogs of kind of like quote unquote doing pain science and like the patient interview and, and history Dude, him and, and so him and Val Vladimir Yanda were like some of the fathers of the biopsychosocial model. Yeah. They were so, they were so detail oriented when it came to communicating with the patient and empowering the patient and teaching self-care. It's really incredible to go back and like read some of their work. Well, it, it is. And it's humbling, right? So it's just like, it's so good to feel fired up about something you care about, but also just remember to like pause and take that bigger view and put things in perspective. Um, cause it's likely not always what meet, meets the eye, so to speak. Um, so I think these are just some of the lessons, right. Um, kind of like maturing through the profession and, and again, like uniting, uniting people that are elevating the standard of care. Like I can say without a shadow of a doubt that you are someone that is helping to elevate the standard of care. Um, and I think ultimately that's, what's most fucking important, <laughs> you know, appreciate spending, I can say the spend, same towards you, obviously. No, but it's just like spending the time worrying about and like fucking bickering over some of the little nuances of, of these different things. It's just like, okay, we need to, we need to just understand big picture and, and is the juice worth the squeeze? And, um, well said. I think just a lot of misunderstanding that stems from lack of communication. So. I think that, that point has been sufficiently drilled in this, <laughs> in this conversation, but I know one that we're both, I know one that we're both passionate about. So as we start to wrap up here, um, I guess this sort of leads into, you know, um, it's been really cool to watch you do your thing, obviously, you know, having your first child taking a big move down to South Jersey, um, 
and, you know, restarting up your practice, restarting up everything amidst a, a pandemic. Um, I know that there was some other life shit that was going on during some of this stuff as well. And so I'm really excited to see you kind of back, back on your feet, back build in building mode um, after taking the time for self-care. And so I, you know, you're doing, you're basically running a new and improved iteration of, you know, the residency of what we were doing. So I kind of want to shine a little bit of light on that and have you kind of speak to, you know, what that looks like. I think even before that, just framing it with like summarizing all we talked about, like how would you kind of describe your clinical philosophy and describe the like philosophy of what you're trying to accomplish with this mentorship that you're providing and, and what you would want people to know about it. So the mentorship in a nutshell is it's a 12 week program and we dissect a bunch of different models of motor control. Some of the most, some of the oldest motor control models out there. And we actually start the mentorship off with talking about the why and, you know, the belief system behind kind of like what we did, Zach, like, have you ever read Simon Sinek's book, start with why? Yes. And when he talks about his golden circle, where like the core of the circle is the why, and then it's the how, and then it's the what, well, like the, I like to look at the mentorship as framed that way. It goes, why, how, what? So why is like your beliefs and values. So we basically dissect the beliefs and values in the first part of the mentorship. Uh, then the how, how do we go about thinking through clinical cases? Well, we start dissecting these different motor control models and how does the brain organize movement is basically like the overlying question here. But like to take it a step further than that, it's like, okay, you have these four different popular models of motor control since the 1930s or before we have the reflex model, the motor program model, the neurodevelopmental model and the dynamic systems model. And then there's also an ecological model, but we'll leave that on the side for now. Each one of these motor control models has helped move the rehab um, profession forward in terms of motor control and understanding the central nervous system, right? And so the question is, you know, which, which motor control model should we follow? All the commercial model these days will wrap themselves around one motor control model or the other and like just plead that that's the way to go, right? So I was really interested in kind of going all the way back to the original philosophers of each of these models and then saying, okay, how were they thinking? What questions were they asking? What, what research and scientific studies like help ignite the thoughts behind this model? What were their strengths and what are their limitations and their weaknesses? And how did the other models help fill in those gaps? And how can we actually use that to create strategic problem solving skills these days? so that we can be up to date with how to help people solve movement problems. So like the underlying goal or the objective is to help somebody more specifically a clinician have this cognitive agility between thinking under different motor control models, like challenge our own biases, propose questions that help shift perspective in the development of our understanding and application of motor control. Right. And, you know, for the nerdy people out there listening, the four questions that we dissect throughout the, the uh, 12 week program is number one, how the heck does the CNS control all the different joints and muscles in the body? Number two, how is sensory information from the environment and from our bodies selected to control movement? Number three, how does the body as a biomechanical entity actually influence motor control processes through sensory afferents? And then four, how do the initial conditions of a task 
and the environment help regulate motor control. And so we use all these popular models of motor control to really help frame what we currently know in terms of the, uh, the answer to these. And like, how do we get it? How do we make it practical, right? And I th you asked the specific question, like what's, the, what's our current philosophy, right? And I've been thinking about that a lot. And even like before you came to me and after you came to me and current day, where I'm at now is my clinical philosophy is number one, we have to start with looking at both the environment and the person period. Right. But the start of my why or the philosophy comes from PNF. Like I said, in the very beginning of the episode is we have to believe in the potential for our patients to change, but to bring out that potential, we need an ideal learning environment, motor learning environment that coaches the whole person. So the physical, the intellectual, the emotional, the social using a positive approach. So a positive approach, like using small wins, what can they do? What strengths do they have? And how can we use those strengths to influence their weaknesses? So there's that from a movement piece, but also the positive approach is what language are we using? What narratives are we using to communicate their limitations and how we're going to attack them, right? So that's that all came from PNF. Then it's, well, I also believe in teaching people how to move with intention while helping them feel the difference between tension and relaxation. And that really came from my training in Tai Chi, which is maybe a whole nother <laughs> episode. <laughs> And then also using variable repetition to help with motor learning and independence that comes from just the motor learning literature. And then ultimately promoting continued engaging activity to help optimize sustainability and longevity, because to me, that's the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect of that is like my values, the core values that I promise to hold dear, near and dear to, to actually um, act on my why or my beliefs is, we first have to understand first before we advise patients. If we don't understand first and you just start trying to be an advice monster, no one's going to listen to you. No one likes an advice monster. So if you don't know how to ask the right questions and gain context from their life, their challenges, their environment, what's going on with them and what they like and what they don't like, what's worked in the past and what hasn't, what's made them tick about the healthcare system and what, what you know, all of that, before we even step into consultant role, then we're going to fail. Yeah. Right. My other value is educate and stay educated on the best practices of self-care because it's ultimately teaching people how to self-care. <laughs> and then the other value is to be proactive. So I promise to be proactive with my own self-care. So as a coach, I can better coach my patients through self-care. Cause if I don't practice what I preach, then I'm going to not be able to help people in the trenches when they go through these problems and challenges that come up, you're not going to be able to be as agile. And then finally, I'm going to do all of that while being compassionate and staying humble, because if we don't have those two things, then again, I don't think we have the fertile soil to then be able to understand first before we advise. And that kind of sets the framework for, and so we actually go deep into all those different beliefs and like where they come from and the scientific support behind it, where I got them from, how I put them into action through checklists then we dive into each motor control model and look at beliefs and um, sorry, the limitations and the, and the strengths of each model. It's like a little bit more detail. You get essentially a live coaching session with me each week and you have PowerPoint audio lectures to go on your, to look at on your own um, before our calls so that our calls can actually be very 
contextual. People can ask questions. People can bring up cases um, and really just get into the trenches about clinical care with all this other information and philosophy as a backdrop. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it's really like, you know, if you're going to get a mentor, this mentor has to be willing to dive into the clinical trenches with you and like actually try to solve real people problems. And that's, and that's what I am super passionate about doing, as you know. <laughs> yes. No, I, I love it, man. So what is the deal with like, is it rolling? Is it cohort based? And how, what's the size of this? That's a really good question. So up until this point, it's been one-on-one, but we're currently transitioning to a small group um, model. Cool. So the next cohort is going to start in January. So next year. And right now it's kind of, you know, open enrollment, if you will, if anyone who wants to apply, reach out, um, you can email us at, you can email me, remez at neuropedicspt.com or neuropedicspt at gmail.com. Um, we're really cool. trying to, we're still trying to figure out all the technical, technical stuff. So we're just using email I, for I, right now. <laughs> I, I get it, man. I get it. So what, what we'll do is we'll just make sure that that info is in the show notes at the yeah, bottom. That's pretty beautiful. Um, I appreciate it. And just try and, and, you know, regardless, you know, of anyone out there listening that would end up taking this or not, I would highly recommend reaching out and just connecting with Ramez because he's one of the most genuine, thoughtful, caring people and just a phenomenal colleague um, to pick his brain um, and just build a relationship with. So um, if, if nothing else, I'm, I'm so super grateful to have Ramez in my life. Um, He is without a shadow of a doubt, been a massive influence on me and my practice. And I can say that I would not be who I am without having gone through that six month intensive learning experience. And um, yeah, man, forever fucking grateful. And I'm really proud of everything you're doing and accomplishing and super happy to support um, what you're continuing to do. So dude, I really, I really, really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm really proud of you for the community that you've built with level up, man. Like, Talk about changing the way we communicate and the narratives around how we go about being healthcare providers. Like this, I hope the level up someday starts infusing into medical schools and different healthcare systems around the world because, you know, the the communication piece is just it's just so important. You've done just such a really awesome job with level up, like hammering that into into the heads of new grads <laughs> and, and students. And I'm just I'm so pumped about that. Thank you, man. Well, I appreciate it and wouldn't be here without you. So everybody listening, thank you for taking the time. Hope that this was helpful. And please, please, please reach out with any questions um, to Ramez. I'll put his contact info below. I answer all my emails. Anyone has any any questions about anything, want to nerd out, I'm, I'm super responsive. Yeah, sure. or just slide into the DMs. We'll get his Instagram handle up there as well. All right, Ramez. Thank you so much, man. Have an awesome rest of your day and weekend. And I'm so glad we're able to connect and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, man.